Hi, this is Jackie here with the Sexy Politico. I'm here with Irina Sukerman. She is a human rights lawyer, national security lawyer, geopolitical analyst, and president of Scare Up Rising. So, Irina, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and you know, your qualifications and any accolades you'd like to share with anybody? Sure, uh, sure, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, my background is in international relations and uh, Middle East, but I'm also uh, working on a lot of issues, especially now involving Russia, Ukraine. I'm from Ukraine myself. Originally, I'm a fluent I'm a native Russian speaker. Um, uh, in, uh, in school, I studied international studies in Middle East, but also Latin America. I went to law school where I focused on national security, on international law, including international business law, and as well as criminal and human rights and security uh, law. Uh, first years after my graduation, I spent just doing general uh, work in law, but soon started working more in human rights and security. Uh, currently, I have two separate uh, professional endeavors. First is a boutique national security law firm, uh, which focuses on providing guidance on fire sanctions, um, counterterrorism, in support of litigation and research in those areas. Um, on the other hand, I also have a, uh, a different uh, business venture called Scarab Rising, which provides geopolitical analysis, intelligence gathering and analysis, information uh, warfare and reputational management and crisis communication uh, support risk risk assessment for businesses and and others. Um, so I, uh, besides all of these, I myself am an analyst. So you'll see me fre frequently commenting in business, economic, as well as uh, foreign policy on foreign policy issues. And those two uh, frequently crossovers. I also. Uh, do occasionally academic work, specifically, especially in information warfare realm, uh, trying to build bridges between practitioners in the crisis uh, management sector and academics studying theory. A lot of the times those two are not connected. So many of the clients, businesses looking for reputational management or crisis handling, uh, they don't get the, the help they need because um, professionals in that realm don't have theoretical grounding in theory, uh, especially in non-Western countries, um, where frequently uh, there is a mismatch between corporate crisis management, uh, background professionals coming in, and political needs uh, in terms of reputational attacks and information warfare. That's where I come in. I study both professional applications and academic background. So that's generally uh, my, my my background in terms of accolades. Most recently, I received awards as a woman leader and as a global humanitarian uh, with, with an organization called WHD uh, at, a, at a gathering in London celebrating trade for peace, essentially using positive econo economics to bring people together and promote good relations through business. Well, wow. <laughs> wow. I I would like to everybody who's listening to this podcast go over to Irina's YouTube channel. There's so much fascinating information there about all of these things that she has just talked about. 
but let's get on to the today's podcast so how as as all of these different global issues are taking place let's just take you the war in ukraine for instance and you see you see institutions and individuals trying to make a difference using their social media cachet and things of that nature is there anything that a private individual could do to play a role in the united states or any country in public diplomacy absolutely there's there's always room for private action and i think some of the most meaningful initiatives uh, came from private individuals uh they came from people providing uh, humanitarian aid uh, providing donations uh, even to the military efforts and of course most importantly counter propaganda efforts because the one uh, obstacle to effective public diplomacy engagement uh, between governments and people or people and people is uh, is the insertion of negative propaganda disinformation uh, things that uh, are literally meant to divide people and to create schisms and to further uh, incorrect versions or views of each other on a human level um, to create social uh social deceptive uh social deceptions and social contagions that make it very difficult to connect to see humanity during wartime and those uh, issues are particularly enhanced as you can imagine you there are social media bots there are entirely networks and there's also a use of corrupted uh, regular media efforts just to uh, perpetuate negative stereotypes, negative perceptions. Most people, an average person, is not necessarily well equipped, even if they are critically minded, even if they are well meaning, even if they are generally benevolent towards other people and are not inclined to see the worst in people. When you're having a constant stream of one sided information, that makes it very difficult to connect. So the best thing people can do is, first of all, read a variety of sources. Second, engage with broad public, with as many people as possible in real life, in social media. Take the time to make those connections. Think about the information they're gathering critically. Think about their own values and principles in evaluating uh, that information. And take the time to learn, to learn about history, to learn about the background of conflicts, and to learn about the people you're engaging with as much as possible. Then you can tell the difference who has genuine grievances, but could still be misinformed, who is deliberately looking to cause problems, and who is um, worth listening to, even if you're at the core disagree with the argument, but the, still there's something to learn. So that that's how you make those judgments in a, a critical uh, situation and that's how you engage with people effectively and you build bridges instead of burning them i couldn't agree with you more uh, how can the united states balance its interest in human rights and security with all the different geopolitical concerns that we have as a nation uh it's always it's always a very very thin line separating uh, the balance of trying to uh, provide interventions, meaningful interventions with st staying out of other people's business, with also securing your own interests. It's never going to be an easy calculus. And when people are looking for easy solutions to complex problems, that's when they generally get in trouble politically. That's when they make 
simplistic decisions that can affect a lot of people. But in general, you the issue is in making that calculus, in listening to to as many people as possible, in evaluating what your own priorities are, what how how are your own interests calmed or served by engaging or not engaging and to what extent because in general most of the time the answer is not going to be black and white it's not going to be we are staying out of this completely and not doing anything or we're going to you know evade invade every country and bomb every terrorist organization out there obviously that's impossible no one has resources patience and uh, uh the need to do that the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle. We have a range of tools for engaging and for responding to critical situations. And I think the answer is to have clarity on with your own public, with your own constituents, uh, have them understand the value of what you're doing, but also the risks and being honest about it, being honest, understanding that you don't expect sanctions to work right away and to be perfect, that it takes a concerted effort to make any policy work long term. And uh, on the other hand, um, that some, that if you want to be helpful, sometimes you can. Sometimes you are the only person who can lead. Maybe and others will join you after you put uh, that example. And sometimes you will have to require a lot of sacrifice, and the public needs to be prepared for that. So you have to be clear and honest and transparent at the start about the processes that got the decision making the interests at stake how it's going to serve public interests uh, but having ex ex excessively idealistic or unclear goals that's the best the, the, that's the fastest way to alienate people who support you need for a particular policy and to make a mess of things at home or abroad no one expects governments to be perfect to have perfect foreign policies and never to make mistakes but you have to be honest about how you make your decisions what what are your values that guide them what are the policies and the principles that you put in and you have to be honest when something is just not working have a clear criteria have clear guiding lights are you actually going to have a red line or are you just going to use it as an excuse to perpetually not do anything or do the minimal what is your policy you have to understand what you're willing to do how far you're willing to go the problem is a lot of the times policies fail because the people behind them don't have the political will to fully to go all the way with enforcing but also they don't they're not able to persuade themselves much less others about why they're doing it to begin with so you need to have some level of stamina some level of principle in order to engage even if the engagement is about pragmatic issues without having some sort of values some sort of interest that you understand you cannot make an effective argument and you cannot convincingly pursue that policy yeah it feels as though a lot of i I can speak mostly from a U.S. point of view, and it feels as though a lot of foreign policy issues either completely stop or just peter off every four years because of a new administration, new groups of people coming in with different values or different points of view on a subject. Some Would you agree problem, with that? The political polarization that has created this sort of divide is not something new it has become more 
more obvious and worse over time. But we've always had we've we've had for a long time an issue of not of elections, first of all, just basically affecting the political calculus. Say that that's what happens when you have them. If you're a monarchy, you can pursue your vision for the for 50 years because the same person is going to be there. When you have different people coming in, it's obvious that they are going to have different priorities. That's just the nature of the of the state. Then the question is, how do you protect core issues, core principles? How do you prevent the country from becoming so polarized that you can't get anything done? One of the issues, unfortunately, uh, in in what constitutes this polarization, this uh, this situation when one party pursues a policy, the other party has to do exactly the opposite, whether it makes any sense or not, is that people here tend to project domestic agendas on foreign on foreign situations, which are not necessarily the case. We keep forgetting the foreign actors have agendas independent and separate from what US does or does not do, which means we have to respond to outside crisis, not only calculating the costs of the elections, of the next elections, but also understanding our security and the fact that other people who are not Americans are going to do what they're going to do, regardless of our own internal domestic issues. So that's the unifying factor, having to understand that other people view us differently from the way we view ourselves. And they have their own separate interests and concerns. And so people can become a threat, even if you don't want them to become a threat. There's sometimes just not anything you can do. If their ideology is completely in conflict with the principles of your own survival, you have to take action to prevent the crisis from becoming worse. What that action may be, you can argue, but the fact that you cannot make other people like us sometimes is, and it's not has nothing to do with us necessarily. That's an issue that escapes a lot of our uh, political class, in my opinion. And I think that's one of the contributing factors to models foreign policy decision making in many cases. That on it, that the people in the other countries are people and have their own points of view, their own political will, and their own constituents that they have to make happy as well. Exactly. And yeah. unfortunately, sometimes if we are talking about non-democratic countries or rogue regimes or movements even that are not non-state actors, they didn't they didn't necessarily care about pleasing any particular constituency. They're pursuing power and their own interests and agendas that are, may not be democratic in nature and may not have a social buy-in. So how do you deal with people who are not representative of, of the people they claim to represent? How do you deal with extremely factionalized sectarian climates or uh, organizations or groups or state actors who are simply pursuing what they want to pursue regardless of consequence who are grossly irresponsible actors on the international stage so that's also something you have to take into consideration sometimes you can't negotiate your way out of somebody else's bad policy do you think that big tech that big tech and foreign policy are going are going to be bigger issues, bigger controversies over the next few years? I think that's going to be one of the top, top priority issues to be addressed and resolved because many of these big tech companies are driven not by a huge social buy-in necessarily with active stakeholders and 
uh, very diverse boards, but on the contrary, but similarly minded individuals who gathered around them other similarly minded individuals and kind of perpetuate a type of groupthink, whether from the left, the right, or some some other non-specified ideological creed that causes um, a lot of the mishandling that we have seen, a lot of the debates. And I think once it gets to a certain point, these corporations become almost rivals to state power. They become not only public-private partner, partnerships, sometimes unacceptably so, if the US government is telling private companies how to regulate speech beyond absolutely necessary security concerns, uh, th this really starts to uh, infringe on constitutional rights, but also on general idea of separation between pro public and private space. And uh, it creates a lot, of, a lot of problems. But on the other hand, you also have corporations that strive to become regulatory bodies, regulate that marketplace on their own. Uh, they bring together, they create this public sphere that's marketplace of ideas, and once there's a social dependency and it, they become, it becomes controlled and, and people become excluded, and they start to impact, impacting government decision-making, and they become their own surveillance mechanism, their own power that, ne that negotiates its own deals with other governments, with other uh, uh, state and non-state actors. So that, that balance of power and ideological influence, and this is going to be important to watch as Americans and others around the world struggle with the differences in perception of freedoms, of security, of privacy, and the extent corporations should play uh, an active role in governance. That's the next step to watch out, to what extent these corporations want to be part of the governing mechanism and not merely platforms uh, that can make money of particular monetized activity. Yeah, I was, I lived in China for three years and coming back home and explaining things such as certain social media websites in China, you have to put in your Chinese identity card information to even sign up i i didn't and then people trying to understand why face why i was locked out of most social american social media networks and things like that and americans over there would make jokes about the great firewall but it but it really is it is a thing over there and it was very surprising that how Chinese people over there didn't care. It was just something that they that they knew. And that was really the first time for me that I'm like, oh yeah, of course, not everybody has the same point of view as I would growing up in the United States. So the problem with that is twofold. First of all, Chinese social media and Chinese um, China's surveillance and government control practices they export they exported beyond its own borders in general social media is a, has become a global communication system so it's not easy to separate even national government linked sites from the rest of the public so that's one issue but another issue even with private companies if they want to have global reach they have to abide by individual 
laws of different countries, which are sometimes completely incompatible with each other, even between the European Union and the US, yes. we're having a significant dispute over data privacy, not only um, because the uh, European Union is so much more concerned about privacy in general, but because they are more concerned about who controls the data, whether they want other countries to control the data or whether they want to benefit and to profit from that themselves without having that share. And this data management has, be, rather than privacy for that matter, security, that's become the real driving point here. But with China, unlike the European Union and, and democratic countries, this control of data is more than just about monetizing it or using it for effective advertising or whatnot. It's as much about projecting its power on other countries around the world for its own geopolitical needs. There's a there's a great there's a connection between government structures and government political agenda and social media and big tech companies operating in China, whether American or uh, or local. And that's something to be aware of. That's why it does make a difference. Even if the locals don't really care, they they live there. First of all, they've been conditioned to live there. Second of all, even if they do care, there's not much they can do about it. It's not like they can uh, all of a sudden change the model of the country they live in. But for foreigners outside the country, it does make a difference because what happens in China doesn't stay there. China is looking actively to project the same model through American big tech, through other international uh, social media concerns and apps to the rest of the world and to export it and to actively uh, use it to gather data of Americans for its own ends that are not necessarily shareable and that are not necessarily used for beneficial purposes. So that's something to be aware of, that this is not a, a level playing field of all actors pursuing the same financial and economic agenda. There's also political, geopolitical concerns that differ widely from system to system. So is there is there a balance, though, that Americans could strike between interventionism and isolationism then? In this case, this is not, it's not a matter of intervening or isolating. It's a matter of responding to their own concerns versus an adversarial structure that is pursuing a very aggressive agenda that, that seeks not mere balance of power in the world, but to displace the US and to subsume everyone under its own vision, one vision. And I, I think many people don't understand it. They think it's just power competition and competition is healthy. It's supposed to make, make us better, but that's not the case. And it's not just about trade. It's not just about industrial espionage, although that certainly not doesn't help. It's about data. It's about projecting power. It's about gathering information and it's about creating a mentality around the world about uh, having to conform to state centered decision-making processes, no matter what that concerns, whether it's human rights, privacy, security, or anything else, that the, set, that the state has to be the central model and that the rights are granted by the states and not by the constitutions and, and not inherent to human beings, which is the Western natural rights um, model we have, we have seen being built 
in the post-Renaissance world from, from Enlightenment onwards. That's the model that has informed the Declaration of Independence in the US, the Constitution, and the way we see each other. It's striking at, art, at odds. It's completely adver adversarial to China's CCP model of state governance. There's no common ground on that basic issue of where rights come from. And that's where we will ultimately be at conflict even, and which is why it's not about settling any particular trade disputes or any particular issues. It's about completely polar different visions of the way the entire system, society, the world should work. Yeah, so do we, do you think that, do you think that, sorry, do you think that individuals or companies will end up being the, will end up being the uh, driving force of global politics in the next 15 to 20 years? I think for now, and it can always change and disrupt, and can be disrupted and should be disrupted. But for now, the trajectory is increasingly towards corporate control and towards greater corporate role in governance and regu regulatory policy and everything concerning rights and privacy and security and data management and all of these things. I there is a blending of individuals controlling corporations and those corporations but at the end of the day it's also about the mindset that controls these issues i find it disconcerting when an entire governance structure becomes associated with one person or one idea whether i whether those people are, are more appealing whether it's mark zuckerberg or elon musk or jack dorsey or whoever comes before or after them the fact that one individual has a control of the entire of this entire system, this can lead to abuses and ultimately this one individual will be the driving force behind that platform. I think it is vital and instrumental for shareholders to be active, to be involved and to be vocal about their interests and to be holding the heads of these organizations accountable. I don't think it should be a top, this top-down approach of uh, blending, you know, public spheres with corporate, uh, you know, ambitions and egos of these individuals into um, into one one mode is going to work very well. We are already seeing conflicts over products, over donations. The FTX scandal of utilizing these groupthink instincts of corporations and their social agendas to create massive financial fraud. To, to the benefit of a very small group of people. This is just one potential disastrous effect. The conflicts over speech and uh, diversity of ideas and, en and engagement of different people is another. And this is what leading to conspiratorial mindsets and greater divisions and manipulation by foreign actors, by the way, when there's social distrust and inclination to not feel that one's rights are adequately protected that you don't, there is this, you, you start becoming distrustful, suspicious, the, you, you become centered in this victim mentality and then somebody else claiming to offer a solution or an explanation manipulates your emotional 
mindset and your uh, and these ideas to create an even further situation we've seen that with the russian propaganda with a with a lot of these things and all this trolling online this is exactly what happens keeps making things worse so there needs to be some sort of accountability for these corporations there needs to be a greater role for individuals so for individual achievement as opposed to corporate achievement for individual uh initiatives to start playing a greater role uh, uh more a meritocratic rather than uh, kind of oligarchic or company-centric approach i think i think the um, yeah so basically the i think we need to a resurgence a renaissance of an individual of individual initiatives because individual initiatives drive diversity in technology they drive alternatives they drive competition and when you have competition when you're busy competing for better products you know it's harder to gain a monopolistic control of any particular structure infrastructure governance regulation and you you start having different models of corporations of big tech companies different approaches and that's when you start people uh, people in general have more choices and better options and better quality and uh, more conversations and more dialogues about what works and where to go if you're not happy uh, if you're not satisfied we we need more options not fewer not more power concentrated in fewer hands yeah the u.s government should definitely definitely do something to prevent mark zuckerberg from buying all of the social media networks but i don't think it's just about enforcing antitrust regulations although that's part of it it's also about encouraging individual mindset individual thinking it's also about um people becoming more aware and that's not something the government can do self-situational awareness awareness of what's happening being educated consumer of products being a more willful you know more assertive consumer of products uh as opposed to simply someone who debates and engages in flame wars and, and rants on social media that's what we will need we need more empowerment of the consumers themselves and the government will not necessarily give you that and in fact all the government initiatives that i'm seeing regarding social media they have not been constructive they have not made anything better they've only entrenched these debates and and uh and trends yeah it feels as though you have the two camps of of the discussion that social media is a business and should be treated as a business and then the other camp discussing social media as this as this public online platform and then the third group saying that it's disseminating news which in reality social media to me feels as though it's all three all three things and nobody knows what to do with it yet i think i think it's healthy to debate to the extent to which these issues should be helped should be um should be dealt with but i think they should be treated separate i think it's po certainly possible for platforms to provide these different options but i think there's a different approach depending on what the option is uh public flat platforms is one thing because it affects people seeking connect connectivity to each other but the problem is the incentive structure concerning this social engagement has been based on data and the useful usefulness of data 
to advertisers, um, to governments and to various entities. And this is why we are at this impasse right now. The news regulating news is a separate issue. And quite frankly, the laws about news dissemination are fairly straightforward. And we, you know, we've had our problem with the news has been about the business, the failing business models of of, of journalism, not about government intervention or or, or those issues, or laws or regulation. It was literally about what works as a business model. So um so having that business, having a platform, having the news and data, there needs to be some sort of a balance and there needs to be a diversity of of opportunities. Now we we are hearing uh, a trend, uh, the, the, there's a trend towards decentralization of communications through, through new platforms such as Mastodon. I don't know what the future of that particular platform is going to be, but this decentralized approach, which makes it harder to regulate content, but on the other hand, allows for greater freedom of expression and diversity is maybe maybe it's worth keeping separate from news disseminations and let news platforms create their own separate thing and and not confuse uh human responses to the news with the news themselves which is and frequent frequently we mistake content for news and con uh, and uh, opinions for verified facts that that's that's what's causing this uh, confusion i think opinions should there should be a broad a very broad protection for opinions but what but quite frankly if you kind of try to do both at the same time it, it becomes difficult to separate and, and that's what is easy to take advantage of and you know there is a great saying everyone's entitled to an opinion but not to their own facts i i i've had that that thought that you just stated so many times but i've never never figured out how to put it into words so thank you so much for that and i think so, that's the core of the debate that's being articulated right now uh where does the freedom of expression uh start and disinformation you know from foreign actors end, and how do you prevent you know rogue actors this is by separating opinion making and debate and public discussion from news and by holding journalists to a higher standard that, that's how we, we do it i think i i can I couldn't agree with you more before we uh before we end today's podcast is there anything that you would like to you would like to state or share or any anything you would like like my audience to know i think business can be a very powerful positive tool for the good for bringing people together for for breaking innovation and uh and 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 creating partnerships and bringing people from uh, around the world that have, have never would never have met um the the i think the decentralization of discussions is optimal solution i think that sort of globalization is healthy it drives innovation it drives competition it um it's a healthy response to authoritarianism and it brings together opportunities for human rights. What's not healthy is when actors with bad agendas become the driving forces. And this decentralized approach is actually when globalization is driven not by decentralization, but centralization, 
uh, policies by power, powerful actors or power-driven power entities seeking to dominate and control the narrative and to shape um, this approach. So I think that this trend has this inability to understand this healthy global communication and global business and global innovation from abuses by actors has created this isolationist uh, trend among many, which is understandable, but it's not fully informed. Uh, I think there needs to, um, in, instead of understanding that there are concrete threats, threatening a healthy uh, business atmosphere, healthy communications and media and social media atmosphere, they tend to believe that any global discourse is in itself going to end up uh, being harmful. That's not the case. The case is when some people decide to impose their own standards on everybody else, that, that's when it becomes a problem. So having healthy national boundaries, healthy individual boundaries, healthy um, internal uh, consumer boundaries versus global huge, you know, uh, corporate, international or one state driven uh, boundaries. That's important with the, within that framework. We need to understand that balance and we need to be active in enforcing it rather than staying away and because then the tendency will definitely be destructive. Having people um, close up in echo chambers is equally unhealthy. Having no global framework for negotiating differences on privacy, security, and all these issues is not healthy. We need to we, we need to be able to do that, but to understand that we have to understand that it's there's a difference between globalization and globalism. And that globalism is not necessarily really true to its name. It's not really that everyone that that you want to have a great, wonderful global framework with everyone respecting human rights. It's the fact that there are people motivated by not a complete lack of respect of human rights that seek to dominate that framework. That's that's the reality. And I think that's the difference that needs to be countered to completely isolationist disengagement that we are seeing from some circles. Well, thank you for being on the Sexy Politico. I will have links to your websites down below in, in the show notes. And thank you for listening to, to today's episode. And I'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.